I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is Dr. Cornelius Grove, Ph.D., Uh, We're going to be talking about cultural factors affecting children's classroom learning, and he is an expert on the subject, a researcher, and the author of several books. Since 1970, students from East Asia have outscored their U.S. counterparts on every international student comparative test, every test over 50 years, no exceptions. Why is this always true, asked Dr. Cornelius Grove. Now he has answers. Immersing himself in hundreds of research reports concerning East Asian children's learning advantages, he uncovered the historical and cultural factors behind East Asians' repeated successes. Dr. Grove explores the ways East Asian parents instill in their children a receptiveness to the formal learning process and explains the values underlying the parents' mindset. He gives us an outline for action for American parents who deeply value academic learning, Dr. Grove has a Master's of Arts in Teaching from Johns Hopkins University and a Doctorate in Education from Columbia University. He's had a decades-long fascination with the cultural factors that affect children's ability to learn in school. Welcome to the show, Cornelius. Nice to have you on today. Thank you, Catherine. I'm delighted to be included. Well, it's great. Uh, this is our second time. Let yeah. me that my 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 uh, information was that we're going to be talking about my new book, How Other Children Learn. Oh, all right. Well, let's How Other Children Learn, which is very different than the way, uh, than the way children learn here in the United States. Is that what we're talking about? The difference, the cultural well, differences. I've, what happened in this case is I, I thought you know. Whenever we talk about learning, whether we're talking about learning in the U.S. or Europe or China or Japan, we generally, almost without exception, are talking about learning in school. And I thought, you know what? Maybe, maybe there's, maybe we could get a a new perspective, a fresh perspective on children's learning if we looked at what's happening in societies where there are no schools or where schools play a very small role in the life of children and families and communities. And those are traditional societies. So I looked at five. So the title of my book, which is coming out soon, it's in press right now, is How Other Children Learn, What Five Traditional Societies Tell Us about parenting and children's learning. And the five traditional societies that I looked at were the Aka hunter-gatherers of Central Africa, the Quechua highlanders of uh, Peru, the Navajos of our own Southwest, the village Arabs of, Le- of the Levant in the Middle East, and the Hindu villagers of India. So each society is on a different continent. Okay. So, well, so we start, let's give an overview of each one of those, because uh, we start with the first, the Aka. That's the one you mentioned first. And I'm, well, we're, yeah. The, the Aka, first of all, they are hunter-gatherers. They're deep in, in the forest of Central Africa. And there are at least at the time that most of the anthropological work was done, 
there were no schools at all. There was really no thought of schools. I am aware that some missionary schools and so forth have come in um, since most of the anthropological work was done, which means just in the last decade or two. Um, so the really interesting thing about the Aka is that in in their culture, the children basically after they are weaned at the age of usually about one and a half or two, the children basically are turned loose in the sense that they are able to go around the community, go you know into the edge of the forest with their with their friends. This is a mixed age group of young people. And they can do whatever they like. I mean, and this is the amazing thing about the Aka. The children basically are completely free to do whatever they want to, with very few exceptions. So this is a really unusual case, although I suspect that this also applies in the case of some other hunter-gatherers. So the question is, if these children are out from under their parents' command, beginning around the age of two and are with their friends and doing what they want to, how do they learn to become good citizens, you might say, of Aka society? And so this is an, inter- this is an interesting uh, uh, question that has really uh, drawn the interest of uh, anthropologists and people like myself. Yeah. And you say that that's drawn your interest. I mean, and how are you connecting that or do you connect that to the way children learn art? Say children in the United States learn. Um, well, obviously, it's a huge difference in terms of yeah. having. Well, yeah, I'm okay. looking at all kinds of learning. Uh, I'm saying what what do children learn to become functioning, responsible members of their societies? Now, there's no doubt that in modern societies such as American society, American middle-class society, children, it's absolutely essential that children learn uh, what we have to teach them in school, and in particular, how to communicate, uh, how to read, write, how to, how to uh, deal with numbers, and those sorts of things. These are very difficult subjects compared to uh, what uh, traditional children usually have to deal with. And uh, but there, the you know, getting along in society and learning to be with your friends and your family and and having responsibilities and uh, being acceptable and being useful, they're all something that all children have to learn everywhere. The difference is that in modern society, we have prioritized school learning, and this absolutely must be. Uh, you know, don't, there's no suggestion here that I think this is a bad idea. This is the way it is, and we have adapted to it in many ways, and some of those ways become obvious when you look at traditional societies. All right, so we're looking at traditional societies as a lay person, uh, which I am, uh, not an academic person. Why? Do, what? How does that put this in the context for all of us? Why, as parents, grandparents of children in our society— why do we need to know this? What's important about learning about, let's say, a society? Obviously, that's I would well, use the word unsophisticated. Maybe that's not fair, but I'm sort of throwing that in in comparison to, say, Western I, culture. I, yeah. 
I wouldn't argue that parents absolutely need to know what I have discovered. I Mm -hmm. am saying that it is useful and insightful to to see what's going on in traditional societies, of which there are hundreds, by the way. I only looked at five, and I can explain how come those five are the ones that I chose. Um, Because it gives us insight into how we're doing things and into why we might want to rethink some of the things that we do and some of the ways in which we organize our families and the values by, that drive families. Now, the fir- one of the first things that you learn about traditional societies is that families in those societies are almost all extended rather than nuclear. And that means that uh, a lot of people around, not necessarily in the same household, but quite often in the same household, uh, they live nearby and they're in and out of each other's house and in and out of each other's lives on almost a daily basis. Um, and these families in these cultures, uh, by and large, live by a set of values that is not the same as our highly individualistic set of values. And this plays out in a number of ways, and it certainly plays out in family life. One of the things that I really came to appreciate as a result of looking at these five societies is that uh, the value the value system that drives families in those societies are what I like to call communitarian. Other scholars would uh, use, and for many years and decades, the word collectivist has been used. And I, collectivist is a word that I, I choose not to use very often because it sort of call, calls up, you know, communist collectivism. And this is not at all what it's about. So I like to stay away from that world, word and use the word communitarian. The mindset in a communitarian family of each member is what I want is what we need. And that's a very, very big difference from what happens in an individualistic family where the, 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 the ethos is what I want is what I need, what I want, what I desire. And we have come in this society to, at least in our middle-class society, and I'm using middle-class very broadly, uh, we tend very strongly to prioritize what children want or what they need or what we think they need. And I'm not saying by think they need that we might not be right. I'm just saying that children's needs and wants get high priority in our society. In traditional societies, they don't. They don't get high priority. As a matter of fact, one of the things that emerges from this study is that in traditional society, parents parent as little as possible, whereas in middle-class society, parents parent as much as possible. We put enormous effort time and expense uh, and concern and anxiety into parenting. We are very active parenting. Am I criticizing this? No, I'm not. 
What I am saying is that it is very insightful to look at traditional families where parents are doing very little of this. As a matter of fact, Catherine, the the practical benefits within a family, the practical benefits that are flowing back and forth among the family members in a traditional family are almost all flowing from the children to the parents. Whereas I want to in interrupt middle- you. Yeah, and I want to, because I think that's obviously that's this is the critical point. And I have noticed uh, now that I have children who are raising their children in the context mm-hmm. of all the information that's on the internet and what they should or should not be doing are constantly even in a more exaggerated form than I think than what you're talking about, uh, so engaged in what the children want and how they want it and are so connected, overly connected. And then you find the results, you know, in terms of, of these kids, as they grow up, there's higher rates of suicide, higher rates of depression, you know, this kind of like individualistic, like, uh, as you say, focusing on the kids and their goals and what they want and what they need. It really has a very, I think, as I see it, negative effect, or it is does have a negative effect on 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 these children as they get older. So taking, well, yeah. Another uh, another uh, speaking to that exactly to that. Another factor is one that is a little less obvious, and that is that children in traditional societies. Again, I, it should be obvious to everyone. I hope that we're dealing in very big generalizations here. And uh, there are always are exceptions, but as a as a pretty good generalization, uh, children in traditional societies are spending hours every day in the company of other children as well as adults in their community. They are learning from other children, from older children. Older siblings are taking care of younger siblings. There are cases on records where. Children four years old are, cha- are have pretty much entire custody uh, in terms of caretaking of the of the newborn in the family. Although a child child care in traditional societies usually is more at five or six or seven years old, it usually involves girls, but might involve boys if no girls are available. So children are spending time with children. They have a very, I guess you could say, a very rich. Uh, uh, social life uh, with peers, with people they see every day, with friends, with cousins, with, uh, you know, older aunts and older uncles. And this is one thing that this is where a great deal of their learning is done. And the children are learning together because they are watching what the adults in their communities are doing, and they want to do the same thing. There is a motive to fit into the community uh, and be accepted by these people who they love and who who love them. Okay, well, um, in your book, there are five traditional societies or, or how children learn uh, that you've that you've researched. Can we make a comparison now? Just kind of jump. I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but take the Aku and compare that to the Navajo. Is there a big difference in terms of these two traditional societies in terms of how children learn? There's a, there's a, there's a similarity between the Aka, pretty much all of Aka society 
and an upper-class group of people in uh, traditional Indian society, and that is that um, they they really have no expectations, or almost in the Indian case, negative expectations for their children to contribute, and, you know, share chores and and do things for themselves. Uh, and so forth. But the other societies, uh, definitely the Navajos, definitely the Quechua, and also the village uh, Arab uh, of, the, of the Levant. In these societies, uh, children are expected to be a functioning part of the family beginning when they can walk. It is that early, and it is an important thing. And I think one of the things that comes out in my book, in fact, I've devoted an entire chapter to it, is you know the question of Americans and other modern folks uh, in Europe and so forth are very concerned because their children don't want to take responsibility. They don't want to assist around the house. They don't want to take out the garbage. They don't want to wash the dishes or whatever. You know, they don't want to make their bed. And um, <laughs> the thing about it is this doesn't happen in these traditional societies because from the from the time that they can walk, given age-appropriate things that they can do, the children are are expected and encouraged and even punished uh, in some ways if they don't. They are a functioning part of the family. They assist in building the fire, boiling the water, taking care of younger kids, shaking out the blankets, uh, you know, on and on, all, all the way up to taking at what we would consider ridiculously young ages children take major responsibilities for things that are going on in the family. And it's Can I ask, it's I want to ask you a personal question because you're a very successful educator, teacher, writer, researcher. Did you want to make the beds and uh, clean up and sweep and take the garbage out? Or did you do that? Well, uh, that's a good question, Catherine, because I grew up and I suspect you grew up and pretty much... Uh, Many of the people that we associate every day grew up in an individualistic culture, and the question you just asked is a question that comes out of an individualistic mindset. Did I want to? But in a communitarian society, what I want is what we need. It doesn't matter what I want. What we want is what drives the family. It drives the mother. It drives the father. It drives me. It drives my older brother. It drives my younger sister. So this is what I mean about a completely different mindset. It's a unified, family-centered mindset in which individuals and their wants and needs are secondary. Now, the parent might look at you know, consider a young a child and say, well, you know, I can see that uh, he or she really needs something. Uh, but, you know, that's where decisions are made in these families. The, the decisions rest with the parents. And in many, many societies, they're with the male. Not all. There are exceptions. 
And uh, so once, you know, once a decision is made, then that's, that's what, that's who we are. That's what we want to do. That's, that's the face we put forward to each other and to our extended family and to our friends and other people that we come in contact with. So what happens in these communitarian societies when someone goes against the grain and like maybe a family or an individual and says, and, 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 doesn't want to do it in this way, doesn't have the we, but gets into the I or what I need. What are the repercussions well, for that in those communities? Uh, it happens. It happens, especially when through radio programs and TV <laughs> programs and other form of communications, yeah. young people begin to hear about individualistic society. And I don't think there's any doubt that an individualist, that an individualistic value system uh, to some people, maybe many people, I have no numbers here, but clearly at least to some people in, in highly communitarian societies, they find this quite attractive. And, uh, well, if they decide they're not going to be communitarian anymore, there are ways in which they are encouraged to, to not do that. <laughs> There may be sanctions of various kinds. Uh, there may be, you know, they, they may be ostracized. And, of course, in the modern world, uh, that sooner or later, they may have an opportunity to leave altogether. Now, when, when traditional society, when families and traditional societies start sending their children to school, the whole organization of formal education, of formal instruction in classrooms, tends to be more individualistic. Children are expected, at least to some extent, to, to do things on their own, even if it's only to memorize something to be able to recite it the next day. They've got to do it. They are acting as an individual. If they don't do it, they publicly fail. If they do do it, they publicly succeed, and so on. So it all gets very, very interesting to how education, when it begins to come to these communities, how that impacts the family. And uh, in a number of societies, this a lot of work has been done with this, and in particular in Navajo society, as it turns out. What's the difference between this and and a cult, for instance? I mean, because there is a difference. These community, these uh, traditional societies, because uh, so, as you're describing it, you know, cults work. Seem it seems that they also kind of work on these principles of engaging everybody in the we rather than the I. Right. Uh, I haven't. Uh... I see what you're saying. I haven't thought about this completely, and yep. I would have to, off the bat, agree with you that uh, a communitarian mindset, what I want is what we need, is seems to be, at first blush, a, a characteristic of uh, what we have come to call a cult. Uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, you, <laughs> you really <laughs> sprung one on me here. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the one reason why we are so suspicious of cults, us individualists, might be because they're no longer individualistic in, the, in those cults, and we don't think that's a good thing. And I think that many people perhaps even including yourself right now, the idea of 
organizing family life, you know, morning, noon, and night, week after week, month after month, along communitarian principles, especially for young people, since they are not the decision makers, they're not at the upper part. These societies all tend to be hierarchical, not egalitarian. Uh, so that, that sounds like a bad deal. But the more you read about these communitarian societies, as I have been doing over the last two years as I was researching and writing this book, the more you see that the that the it, it's a, it's a, it's complicated. It's not just black and white. It's not just oh god, that's just so silly. That's just so bad. How does anything good come out of that? You begin to see that the, indeed some good does come out of it, and that they have some they have some things going from them that we have lost given our highly industrialized, highly educated, individualistic mindset. So there's, there's trade-offs. And that's yeah. why looking at, looking at uh, traditional societies is something that is kind of an eye-opening experience and say, hmm, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I think that's critical in terms of your book, your, the book that is coming out. And I'm going to ask you more of how we can access the book, because I think that's true. And I think I did allude to that. What, what we're doing is individualistic societies isn't necessarily the best because of our statistics and how that. Plays well, of course, out. I, yeah. each society decides for itself what is best. And <laughs> nothing in my book. Uh, ends up saying, you know, condemning our individualistic society. As a matter of fact, I say, given given our environment, given our social and industrial surroundings and the importance that we absolutely must put on education, the way we're doing things makes sense to a large extent. But when you look at these traditional societies, you get the idea, well, maybe we're Maybe we're really overdoing some of what we do. Maybe we could pull back in some ways. Maybe we need to give more leeway to young people. Like, well, you look at these traditional societies and you see, my God, at, at ages five, six, and seven, children are taking major responsibilities for the family welfare. And I can go into some examples here, but I think we're probably out of time. Yeah, we have just <laughs> a couple minutes left, but it is a fascinating topic. Uh, really interesting. So tell it us how very, children learn. That's the book. Yeah. How children learn. And it, we've been talking to court. I have been talking to uh, Cornelius Grove, PhD. So uh, Dr. Grove, so give us website and or websites we can go to for more right, information. Here's the, yeah. Here's the situation, Catherine. The book is in press. Okay. Uh, I'm told that it will be published uh, in uh the first quarter of 2023, the publisher, like all my other books, is Roman and Littlefield, a very old, respected publisher. And um, um, the book, uh, like all books, will be available to folks in all the usual ways, except it probably won't be in bookstores, but bookstores can order it for you, or you can order it directly. I am now building a website for the book. The book's title is How Other Children Learn, and the website's name is HowOtherChildrenLearn.info. Notice, not .com, not .net, but HowOtherChildrenLearn.info. I expect that this website is going to be up sometime in January, before the book is published. And people who go to the website will be 
given away, they, they will be able to easily find out how they can acquire this book. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. How Other Children Learn. Look forward in 2023. Dr. Cornelius Grove, PhD. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 